Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's the weeds. I'm Fabiola Sinius, sitting in this week for John Quillen Hill. And today on the show, the growing threat to defund public libraries across America, a deep dive into book bans, and what it all says about the strength of our democracy. Growing up, my dad, siblings, and I had a Saturday morning routine. We'd wake up early, eat breakfast, and explore Prospect Park or the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. And then, we'd spend the entire afternoon at the Brooklyn Public Library. I still remember the excitement of walking into the library, pushing open the heavy front doors and stepping through. Within moments, I was on my way to my favorite place, the big comfy chair in the kids' section. I wanted to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for the umpteenth time or dive back into Middle Earth through The Hobbit. I also remember getting my first library card. It gave me a newfound sense of control and responsibility because only big kids got that privilege. The sheer wonder of spending hours at the library as a kid was empowering. But of course, libraries aren't just for kids. They're open to all. I really think libraries are one of the last bastions of information and ideas with a mission that is intended to help the community grow with no other purpose other than being there for the community. That's Cody Crone. He's an administrative librarian near Kansas City, Missouri. Cody has worked in libraries for more than 13 years, and he speaks poetically about the power of the library. Libraries have to be able to provide those materials that show us all that we are a part of the world. We all need to be here. We're all helping each other get better. Whether we really believe that or not, and sometimes we have challenging conversations, but we're all here for each other to get better. And libraries help bring people together, and they show us that we're not alone. But in the past few months, the foundation of what libraries represent in Missouri has been shaken. Last August, Republican lawmakers passed Senate Bill 775, which set new content standards that libraries have to meet in order to get state funding. These rules banned anything containing, quote-unquote, explicit sexual content and could lead to fines and or jail time for anyone who broke them. Months later, in February, the Missouri ACLU filed a lawsuit against the bill. And then, in March, in what was seen as retaliation to the lawsuit, 
the state legislature threatened to remove $4.5 million of library funding from the state budget. The action sent shockwaves through a system that had never really been caught in political crosshairs before. When you take this funding away, you're removing people and services from that library. You're harming the communities of Missouri by removing this funding. In addition to being a librarian, Cody is also the volunteer legislative committee director for the Missouri Library Association. I spoke to him at the tail end of a busy legislative session. All of my years working on the legislative committee, we've built relationships with legislators. And I would say up until probably last year when we saw Senate Bill 775 with the amendment affecting school libraries and schools, I really would have thought that our relationships were built up well enough that if there were concerns on the things that were being shared in schools or in libraries, that they would come and talk to us. So I'm a little disheartened that those conversations didn't happen and the need was felt to go ahead and and run forward with 775 last year with the administrative rule in October and November, and then to remove library funding as well. So it's, it's been a little chaotic. It's been a little all over the place. And my job throughout all of this has been to make sure that librarians can be on the same page and understanding what's going on with our legislation. There's a lot of rhetoric going on right now around libraries, and I really would love for us to be able to focus and get back to what it is that libraries actually do. So can you clarify what that final rule was in May? What were libraries across Missouri required to do in order to receive this funding from the state? So libraries were required to make available their collection development policies that address how they make selections in terms of age appropriateness. The second point is they just can't spend it on things that are considered pornographic to minors, obscene, or are considered child pornography. Those things are already illegal. The next point was having a policy that allows a minor's parent or guardian to determine what that minor or child can access in the library. And that is the vague, probably one of the vaguest points around all of this that we had to interpret. The next point is not having uh, age-inappropriate materials displayed in children's areas of the libraries, not having events or presentations uh, at the library unless they have age-appropriate designations attached to them, um, which, again, a lot of libraries already do that with the programs that they provide, and then having a publicly accessible materials challenge policy. Many libraries have been confused and asking questions. What does this mean? Does this mean that I have to expire all of the children's cards that we have on file and force parents to come back in to sign another registration notice saying that, I understand that this library card provides my child access to all materials in the library. I don't want to comment on what libraries have done um, because it's confusing. It's vague. Uh, Each library has done what they think is best in order to be able to comply and to be able to retain these funds. And that's the thing. The larger libraries could probably take this hit and be fine and survive. And their services would probably not really change. Their public probably would not see drastic changes in services that they're providing. For the smaller libraries, the rural libraries, I had several conversations with library directors where they would have had to make hard decisions on whether they can bring in audiovisual materials in a community that is aging and increasingly relying on the audiovisual materials because maybe 
you know, as we get older, our sight tends to go and we can listen better. But I'll tell you the the hardest story I heard was that so state aid can be used for a range of things. And one of those things can be paying for personnel. And so one library in a small town that is the only job center in that town now because the job center closed. So the librarians are spending lots of time sitting down with customers, just helping them edit their resumes, edit cover letters, find out where to search for jobs online, filling out those applications online. And these are communities that also are relying on that library for its internet service because they more than likely don't have internet at home or even have devices at home. And so if it's their job center and their internet access point and you take those dollars away, and now my library that has six people in it only has four or two people now I can't spend as much time with my customers at the computer helping them with their resume, helping them understand how to navigate an online application when they've never navigated an online application in their life. Having staff who have the ability and the time to answer those questions are vitally important for all libraries. So the Missouri House stripped the funding, but the Senate did ultimately restore it. Is the threat actually gone? I actually don't have an answer for you on that. So immediately, the threat is gone. I see no reason why the funding that got restored would be removed after the fact. So the only other step that I'm aware of we're waiting on is for the governor to sign all of the budget bills. I sure hope that the conversations we had with legislators clarified what was going on and that there won't be this initial reaction to just straight up remove our funding. I do think that we could see some other legislation that surrounds this idea of no longer trusting their libraries to ethically provide materials to their communities. Um, Those are things that I'm going to be watching for. And the thing that I have to go back to is these libraries were put together and voted on initially. Maybe they might have been put together 50 plus years ago, so by a whole other generation, but they have remained in place. They were voted by the people to be put together. They voted to have a tax to support that library. And then the state decided that it was important for them to, for the state to also provide some funding to the state's libraries. Because if a community recognizes the importance of a library within itself, the state recognizes that that is important as well. The state might not, won't start a community's library for them, but it will support them. And that is in our state constitution, that library funding is provided for a library that is created within a community. Can you just talk about the connection between book bans that are happening at in school classrooms, in school libraries, and how are they connected to uh, what we see the state legislature doing in Missouri? So the book bans are specifically connected to that Senate Bill 775 that got passed last year. They are the school's response to interpreting, again, getting back to interpreting what the intent behind the law was. And so you see several school districts out in St. Louis, uh, I know of one here near the Kansas City area that have removed books. I don't know the specifics of them, but I can imagine it's not too off, far off base to say that someone came to the school with a list of books and a complaint saying that they disagree with this book being on their shelves. With the law in place last year, the schools most likely saw that it better to remove the materials first and to evaluate them later than to put any of their employees or any organizations they're associated with at risk of having this law applied to them. But at the end of the day, 
when you start removing materials that you've brought into the collection based on your collection development policy, which I'm certain that schools have those. If you have a policy on it, you need to stick to your policy. Otherwise, you're making exceptions off the cuff and at the behest of the loudest voice. And when you listen to the loudest voice, it's not always the best for everyone you're serving. And when you serve a large community or even a small community of students, they themselves are diverse. And it's important to recognize that you need to have something in your collection for everyone. You'll see schools say, well, if we remove it from the school library, they can still access it from the public library. Again, the problem is, can they actually get to the public library to access that material? That's, that's not a, a substitute because there are all sorts of other barriers, whereas they're at school. They have the opportunity to visit their library there. They have to go to school. Legally, they're required to go to school and get an education. So having the materials that they can see themselves in is important for schools to fulfill and make available as well. Cody, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Fabiola. I've really enjoyed getting to talk with you. So that's what's happening on the ground in Missouri. Up next, the movement to ban certain books from schools and how the bans are playing out across the country. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. It's the weeds. I'm Fabiola Sinius, sitting in today for John Cullen Hill. We just heard about the legislative threat that libraries in Missouri face this spring. And now I want to zoom out and look at the country as a whole. 
because we're not just hearing about school book bans or the threat to defund libraries in one state. They're happening all over. So in the first half of this school year, we counted over 1,400 instances of book bans. That's Casey Meehan. She's the program director for Freedom to Read at PEN America, a nonprofit organization that fights censorship and advocates for free expression through literature. Part of their work includes tracking book bans in schools across the country. And I wanted to know, how do we even define book bans? You know, this has been something, I think, uh, you, you know, that has been challenged increasingly. But, you know, PEN America has always been quite consistent in our definition. And we define it as an instance of which access to a book is removed or diminished. So if we had a book that was previously available in a public library and that public library decided to remove that book permanently, to remove that book temporarily and put it under some sort of, you know, review process or reconsideration process, or they decided to restrict access to that book by requiring parental permission or putting it in a section of the library where you need to ask a librarian for permission to access that book. Are there misconceptions about book bans that you think need to be dispelled? Maybe something that the public gets wrong about book bans and and how they work? There's so much rhetoric, uh, increasing rhetoric too, around what books are being challenged in schools. Publicly, we hear time again, that we're not banning books, we're just removing or restricting books based on age appropriateness, or we're removing the porn in public libraries or the porn in school or the obscene material. And there's so much in there to unpack, but if there is in fact porn in schools or public libraries, like who the heck would have put it there in the first place? Uh, What we see instead is that that language that what is actually being removed under this guise of pornographic or obscene or harmful to minors uh, material are books that are inclusive of LGBTQ plus characters, identities, are books that talk about race and have characters of color, are books that discuss sex and have any kind of mentions of sexual content or sexual experiences. I mean, those are the books that are being pulled. Um, But by no kind of legal or colloquial understanding, do they meet, you know, pornographic terminology or obscenity terminology? I think that's like a big one that, you know, I think PEN America and others really try to unpack that this very kind of provocative rhetoric about what books are being removed is, is a mischaracterization of the books that are actually being pulled from schools and public libraries. So let's talk numbers. How many book bans have you all tracked, whether you want to talk about 2023 or in the past two or three years? We at PEN America have been tracking instances of book bans in public school and school libraries. The other folks like the American Library Association is looking at books that are being challenged in public libraries. Um, but for PEN America, you know, we have seen um, since 2021, we've been tracking instances of book bans. Um, and we do see, you know, kind of continuous increases in the books that are being um, challenged and removed from our public schools. So in the first half of this school year, which is our most recent, which our most recent report speaks to, we counted over uh, 1,400 instances of book bans. And for PEN America to record a book ban, um, there has to be some sort of like publicly accessible data out there. So either it's been reported 
locally by journalists or has been, you know, uh, put on a district website that's publicly available. We always say we're likely undercounting this quite significantly and that there are likely many books that aren't even being publicly reported for us to record. The thing that I think, you know, kind of doubles down on that alarming number is within those instances of book bans, that's about 800 unique book titles. Um, so there are 800 books across the country in just the first half of the school year that are being deemed as, you know, no longer appropriate or have been removed um, from, you know, circulation as part of this movement. Over the last, you know, year and a half since we started tracking book bans, we've seen, you know, about kind of like four, over 4,000 total instances of book bans from fall 2021 through fall 2022. We'll have another kind of end of the year report, which will look to this entire school year. And our preliminary sense is that we will continue to see increased and heightened numbers of book bans. And to clarify again, so when you say 1,400 instances and then 800 unique titles, so that means in the 1400s, uh, a certain title could have been banned several times across like different states, double counted, triple counted. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. You know, so when we think about an instance of a book ban, it's at the district level. But this movement that we're that we're speaking to, this like book ban movement, is exceptionally well coordinated. They're well organized. They're well resourced. So when a book kind of ends up in a list, that list is then shared across districts. So you do see a lot of similar books being banned across you know multiple districts, which is how we end up at our top most frequently banned book list. I'm still shocked that there can be 800 unique titles. I agree. <laughs> like, that is just shocking to me that there can be, just in the fall, just for 2022 into 2023, the first part of the school year, 800 unique titles. Yes. And these are books that were, you know, they, books don't just, like, haphazardly show up in, in school libraries. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, thought that goes into selection processes Force that have, you know, always traditionally existed. So the idea that there's, right, this there's this many books just from the fall where that access to those books have been removed um, is alarming. I think, you know, I think that number, that's the number that kind of always sticks with me too. It's like 800 unique. I don't even have 800 books in my house. It's like a lot yeah, of books. Yeah, I used to be a teacher, a middle school teacher, and the process for getting a new book into school or like writing curricula and saying, hey, we should introduce this book into it. That's not something that happens overnight. It's like an entire approval process to get a book in front of students. So that that is fascinating. Have you noticed any trends or commonalities between the books that are being banned as part of book bans? So what kinds of genres are being targeted or, or themes are being targeted? So last school year, overwhelmingly, we saw that books that were being removed included LGBTQ plus characters or had LGBTQ plus themes or included characters of color. That trend continues into this current school year. In addition, you know, this school year, we also saw more and more books being banned that include a very broad understanding of sexual content. So you know, books that discuss kind of like health and well-being, books that have any sort of physical violence or sexual vi sexual assault, books that have any sexual experiences between characters, books that mention teen pregnancy or abortions. So I think what we see kind of playing out in real time is efforts to diversify and diversify the books that are accessible in school libraries and in public libraries is being met with a very strong pushback that, you know, is 
narrow in its ideological viewpoint. Are there specific titles that you can share that maybe books that have been banned over and over? And then are there some like random outlier books that are like, why did this get banned? Why did this get caught up in in the ban? You know, there's kind of like the most well-known or kind of like the books that continue to show up, unfortunately, on these most banned books. It's not a it's not a list, you know, to be excited about, but the books are amazing. Um, we see Gender Queer, Flamer, The Hate You Give, All Boys Aren't Blue tend to be, you know, kind of four of the most frequently banned books, you know, from year to year. We've also seen The Handmaid's Tale, uh, different graphic novels are increasingly popping up on banned books because they have that like visual depiction mm. of some of the things that people are challenging. This year, we also saw. Um, several of Rupi Carr's books, uh, like Milk and Honey. Interesting. You know, Rupi, unfortunately, kind of appeared this year. And then um, we saw, you know, the book challenges show up in several different districts. But again, the way that, you know, her prose is kind of shaped in different ways or discusses, you know, sexual assault has brought that book into the the books being challenged. Poet X um, is so beautiful by Elizabeth Azafado. You know, that book written for young adults if my memory is right, like they don't actually even have sex. They kind of just think about having sex and, you know, but we're still challenging that. So it's just, it's so many. And I think what we see is um, the authors of these frequently banned books. I mean, again, they're women, they're non-binary, they're individuals of color, they're queer LGBTQ plus individuals. Um, So even like the, you know, the authors behind many of these works are, you know, directly kind of connected to the works that are being censored. Um, And I think, you know, we know that these are identities that have historically been underpublished and also, you know, underrepresented in, in school libraries. So, you know, again, it's kind of just like it's sitting in this moment of increasing um, diversity and representation is just is being met with a really strong resistance to keep books off shelves. So beyond the fact that we're talking about books, what would you say is the connection between book bans at schools and then book bans at public libraries? PEN America uses the term ed scare. It, you know, harkens back to historic moments of censorship, but certainly, you know, is kind of our attempt at PEN America to capture this broad effort that, you know, uses kind of heightened intimidation and anxiety around what and cannot be taught in public schools public libraries, public spaces more broadly. So these growing campaigns that we see showing up in different kind of educational institutions um, to suppress certain ideas and certain content areas, you know, that's that's how we see kind of this connection between what's happening in public schools and what's happening in public libraries. And certainly it's noteworthy that both like kind of institutions, but your public schools and your public libraries are so central to kind of democratic ideals of our country and are, you know, really intended to be these these places where knowledge is accessible to all, right? You have your public education is is ensuring that knowledge is available to all. Your public library, same, same idea that books and knowledge and resources and ideas and viewpoints are like broadly available to the public. So to see kind of restrictions of this way that, target, you know, certain types of content, certain types of identities, certain types of ideas as it's just, it is alarming and kind of pushes against the ideals of our democratic institutions. 
Which states would you say are leading the effort to ban books in schools? So this fall, uh, when we look at kind of the states that are banning the most, we see Florida having kind of the highest number of districts banning books, but then Texas having the most instances of book bans, as well as South Carolina and Michigan, Missouri, Utah, and we're, you know, we're also up there in the top contenders as well. It sounds like a lot of the bans that target books about identity, whether it's race or sexuality, they try to ignore history. How are teachers supposed to have lesson plans that don't include these books? How are students supposed to explore school libraries without being able to read these books and and access this kind of history that's trying to be banned? We hear from educators and librarians, you know, all over the country quite a bit. And anecdotally, I think there there is a real challenge here in how to navigate what's happening. You know, in some states, Missouri and Florida, Tennessee and other places, there's like real kind of like threats in the legislation around criminalizing or penalizing educators or librarians who are deemed as providing, you know, harmful material to students. And there's, you know, we we at Penn would call that like a chilling effect. There's a real chilling effect that's happening where educators and librarians are unsure how do you move forward, are unsure what they can and cannot say, and are worried about, you know, potentially being punished for for sharing resources or for speaking about history or for, you know, celebrating Pride Month or Black History Month or all these moments that we have during the school year for educators to uplift different lived experiences and identities in their in their own teaching. Recently, we've been following a case in California where the social studies program that was um, voted to be removed by the school board and part of you know what's being identified for that removal is the supplemental material on Harvey Milk, the first openly gay politician in the state of California. And the, a few board members have identified that as like offensive. So this idea that we can, you know, remove elected officials or remove that history of California, remove the story and the um, information of an activist who was you know, an LGBTQ activist, but also was involved in many different ways in the state of California's history um, is, you know, is just, is increasingly kind of alarming and a bit, it, it just demonstrates the way that speech is being chilled in, in many different ways and what students can access and what students are reading and what students are able to learn and how we kind of share, share that history that you speak to. And you mentioned before that this is a, a concerted effort to to ban books. So can you talk about the progression of book bans in uh, various states? Like what needs to happen first uh, for a book to get banned and, and how does it actually end up getting banned? One would start with having a, you know, a nice conversation with the educator, the librarian about like, oh, you know, my student brought um, this book home. You know, I had some questions about why it's assigned. Like, talk to me about kind of the merits of assigning this book, or of um, you know having my my child or my student, you know, bring that book, you know, for additional reading. Right. So, like, step one conversation. If the conversation doesn't go, kind of, you know, if there's still concerns following the conversation, there's always been like formal reconsideration policies. So you would. Um, share like a specific objection to a specific title. And then that title would be reviewed and assessed again, based on kind of artistic and literary merits. And then there would be a decision um, from a review committee, which typically would be, you know, maybe like five people, an administrator at the school, a librarian, maybe a student, maybe a parent. So then that committee would then make a decision whether to retain the book or to remove the book. What we see happening 
now is a few things. Like if you're following kind of that traditional process, what's happening more and more is you're receiving challenges of 10 books, 30 books, 100 books. And to go through that kind of procedural best practice of a review can take years, really. I mean, there's a district in South Carolina, Beaufort, that received 97 book challenges, and they are convening review committees for each of those books. And I mean, I think it really could take probably like several years before um, they're able to, you know, read and review and make a decision on each of the 97 books for that school district. Um, So the way in which the current movement is you know, kind of just like overburdening the traditional process of how reconsideration policies and practices were done. We also see, you know, legislation playing a role or even like guidance from like departments of education around erring in the side of caution, um, which is leading to more and more kind of administrative or school board level decision-making around books that are just being removed without kind of that formal reconsideration review process. So we followed legislation in Missouri uh, that, again, prohibited kind of explicitly sexual material from from being in schools. And that led to, you know, over 100 cases where books were just, you know, being removed without any specific challenge, without any kind of formal review, but out of fear of being out of compliance with that piece of legislation. So just another example of, you know, the many ways in which we are seeing books uh, either challenged or not challenged and then reviewed um, from access. Sometimes news stories about book bans can feel really abstract, but they're impacting real people in a number of states. So are there some specific stories about how book bans affect children, families, schools, other people in a community that you can share with us? I think it's quite layered, to be honest. And maybe that's why it's not as publicly discussed, because it's a harder, it's, you know, in some ways it's harder to talk about. But, you know, Pen America often talks about how books can be Mirrors, windows, and glass doors. It's a um, Dr. Bishop was a, a I believe, a sociologist um, who kind of coined that phrase that books books offer this way to see oneself reflected and then to also learn about others with different lived experiences and to like be that you know that door to gaining empathy and to having like a deeper understanding of somebody who may look and live differently than you. So when we see books being banned, again, we see, you know, there is a bit of a narrow focus on the types of books, the specific books that are being banned. And this idea that you would like ban or remove a book that represents one's own identity is so harmful. I think it's harmful to the, to authors. It's harmful to students. It's harmful to the students who don't get to read a book about somebody who has a different lived experience than them. Um, and the messaging that comes with a lot of this, that, you know, a book that has, um, you know, let's just say like an image of um, a same-sex couple holding hands or kissing or taking, you know, their kid to a school, like that image could be so offensive to somebody that it n- needs to be removed from a school library. I mean, that whole, that that rhetoric and that message is quite harmful um, to the people who, in fact, you know, are you know, identify as LGBTQ plus or um, have a family member or have parents, you know, who are a same-sex couple. So I think, you know, something for us to continue to kind of interrogate and maybe amplify like those those real impacts at a very, um, you know, individual level. Absolutely. I want to talk about the legal landscape of book bans. Are people fighting back against book bans in courts? 
And how has legal action impacted book bans so far? I, I do know that PEN America has been involved in some uh, legislation against book bans in various states as well. Yeah, so PEN America is um, currently filed suit against um, Escambia School District in Florida. And, you know, the, the lawsuit there argues that the school district violated First Amendment rights of students authors and the publishers by removing books um, based on what we've been talking about, these like ideologically driven objections uh, to the content or disagreements with the messages and views within those books. We also are arguing that the the district has violated equal protection clause um, with of the 14th Amendment that because the books, again, are being singled out um, are disproportionately by non-white or by authors of color um, or by LGBTQ plus authors, um, or those, these are books that talk about, you know, race and racism or include LGBTQ plus identities. And precedent would tell you, you kind of like legal precedent that book bans, um, are, are not upheld. You know, there's precedent that says books, you know, should be available and can't be banned because of these narrow ideological objections. Um, so I think folks are hopeful that, you know, current lawsuits will look back and and follow, you know, historic precedent here. Illinois just did something pretty bold. Basically, the, the Democratic uh, governor came out there, Governor Pritzker, saying, we are going to ban book bans. Can, ban the bans. Ban the bans. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that? Do you think more states will will follow Illinois? And, and, and what do you think Illinois banning the bans means and, and what kind of impact it will have? Like I would say the Illinois governor taking this proactive measure, you know, is fantastic. And I imagine that there are states that will follow. You know, we maybe have some, you know, thoughts about the way in which the um, legislation was enacted. You know, I think because funding is a mechanism that is included in this piece of legislation, uh, and as discussed earlier, like we have seen the way in which public library systems have like willingfully foregone funding, you know, rather than have inclusive books. So there is like that that moment of like, let's just hope there, you know, are just good actors in the state of Illinois that won't use this very positive, proactive measure um, to just shutter library systems. But we recently saw um, a joint statement from the California governor's office, the state superintendent's office out of the Department of Education in the state, as well as the office of the attorney general. Um, and their joint statement um, was, you know, is also instructive, like the Illinois bill that speaks to, um, you know, the statement just reminds school decision makers of constitutional precedent and also kind of uses the attorney general's office to say that when books are removed, that the attorney general will, you know, investigate kind of the process and rationale behind those removals. So just other ways that I would say we're seeing kind of states take more proactive measures and, you know, adding like an additional check and balance to this um, movement to pull books from public schools and public libraries. Up next, we'll get into what this unprecedented moment of literary censorship means for democracy as a whole. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, 
got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. We're back. It's the Weeds. I'm Fabiola Sinius. I don't know about you, but it feels like these book bans came out of nowhere. Like, once 2022 hit, it was just kind of like, oh, I guess we're talking about book bans now. You know, I would say no, it didn't come out of nowhere, although it is still a bit surprising that it kind of manifested in this way. But, you know, I think in some ways I would say 2020 was, you know, kind of like a focusing moment. There was, yeah, obviously, we all know what happened to 2020, um, so many different things. But for public schools in particular, I think they became kind of like a base of real politicized debates around, do we open or close? Do we require vaccines or not? Do we mask or do we not mask? You know, that was also where we begin to see the origins of Moms for Liberty. It's also where we see this resurgence of parental rights movements. So in the, from 2020, I would say this is kind of a continued offshoot of that, of these um, very heightened issues that are kind of being battled out in uh, in public schools in a way that I think that is unique, that we have not seen public schools be kind of the central place for this type of politicized ideological battles. Uh, but we are certainly seeing it now. Like, I think it stems from just like a distrust of public institutions, a distrust of public schools, and this idea that you know, individual parents um, and individuals should have a larger or could have a, I don't know, more heightened say in what is being offered to their students, in, in, at least in the case of public schooling and then at public libraries. I think it's almost similar. It's like what, you know, what is and is not part of public narrative, what is and is not part of our public history, what is and is not um, part of public knowledge. Um, and I think we're just seeing this become a bit more politicized than, you know, any part, like any recent history that we can harken back to. Yeah, the distrust, that idea sounds really true to me. Like there was a lawmaker in Louisiana who said that he believed uh, libraries to be like liberal grooming centers. Uh, and so that was the reason why right. he he thought that things needed to be shut down, which is sounds extreme, but it feels like there's that distrust at the center of that. It does sound extreme. Yeah. And some of that, like, that's the kind of like rhetoric that I think has really added gas to the, to the movement is like this idea that, right, that there's, you know, I think we see it all along this like terrible misuse of words like groomers and pedophiles. And even again, back to where we started, like pornographic materials, you know, there is, there is kind of this like fear. Well, at least I, you know, I imagine that there's like a fear and a mistrust of that's, kind of seeding a lot of that, which is, you know, which again is challenging. And I think when we look at public institutions and public schools, I mean, really, you know, the, the aim is to be inclusive for all and to not have a very narrow ideological viewpoint in what's offered. 
you know, but also to be honest and representative of like our shared collective history. So I feel like a lot of this conversation is about, on a foundational level, just American society. Like what kind of country do we want to create uh, for children and, and what do we want them to have access to in the process? So what would you say is the connection between books and reading and democracy more broadly? And, and then how are these book bans threatening those connections? Yeah, I mean, I think we see the efforts to ban books as deeply undemocratic, that book banning imposes restrictions on students and families based on the preferences of a few, which we see over, like I speak to this idea that it's a coordinated movement. And within that, it's really a, a vocal minority here that we're not talking about everybody. Like majority of folks disagree with book banning. Um, I think a majority of, you know, even parents would see that they would like to make decisions for their own kid, but not necessarily impose their views on everyone's child who's in a given public school. So, you know, I think what we see is uh, undemocratic. I think we also see the way in which schools, again, are intended to serve the educational process by making knowledge and ideas available and ensuring that there are books available regardless of personal or political ideologies. Um, so moving forward, you know, I think we would love to see a place where all students have that freedom to read and the freedom to access a diversity of um, views and stories and to see themselves and to see others with different lived experiences reflected in, in books. Um, so, you know, that is our, our hope is that we can bring us back to a place where that freedom to read, that freedom to learn is recentered in these conversations and is uh, brought back to, you know, public schools and other institutions that serve, you know, that intended goal. Casey, is there an end in sight? And what do you think that end <laughs> looks know. like? Or so. what do you hope the end uh, would look like? I hope that there's an end in sight. I think it might get a bit rocky before it gets better. Um, you know, I think we are keeping an eye towards our upcoming presidential election and the way in which, um, you know, policies that are being driven by um, governors or others who are um, showing up as candidates could have, you know, quite broad, like, you know, if if kind of they take this the seat of president, that they could have broad implications for students nationwide. Um, you know, I think we ultimately, if history shows us anything, it's that people who ban books are not favored in the long term and that books are you know, just a critical like resource and tool for thinking bigger and differently about our future and what our world, you know, could look like. And I think enough people kind of know that and are willing to um, fight for that as well. So, you know, I don't know. I'm forever optimistic, but <laughs> you tell me. What we need that. <laughs> we need the optimism. And we're just so glad that you're out here doing the work that you do and and spreading optimism around something that seems so bleak. <laughs> for every Pen America, there's so many individuals going to their school boards, running for school board, prior educators like yourself or current educators, librarians and retired librarians, students that I think are, you know, really tuned into what's happening and are, you know, potentially that group may have been less coordinated as it started. I think we're seeing increasing coordination on messaging and language sharing and the way in which we can continue to identify that this is undemocratic, that this is against um, First Amendment 
you know, principles and free speech principles and um, that, you know, a better, a, a better way forward is a place where we freely access books and we have the freedom to read freely. So we'll keep pushing. And I think having an opportunity like this on the weeds to talk about it and hopefully galvanize other folks is an amazing opportunity as well. Well, Casey, thank you so much for being with us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. That's all for us today. Thank you to Cody Crone and Casey Meehan for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Anouk Dusso and Caitlin Penzi-Moog fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host for today, Fabio Licinius. And just a quick programming note. We're off next week for the 4th of July holiday, but John Cullen will be back in the host chair with a new episode on July 12th. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. 